Today's text comes from 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I'd invite you either to open your Bibles, and as Dr. Blomberg encouraged us last week, it's good for us to bring our Bibles to church so we can see the context of what's being read. Um, if you've got an app, if you're taking notes, some of that, that's great, so we can take it into the week with us. But let's read the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he's going to kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But, the, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Oh, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is God's word for which we give thanks. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it. And we ask today that you would use the words that you've given to Dr. Blomberg Prepare all of our hearts to hear them. And then beyond that, Lord, give us strong will that we would obey what you call us to do out of your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Joy.
Do you ever get asked questions at the beginning of a sermon where you're invited to talk back? Oh, okay, okay. Some places would just freeze in fear. If The year 1969, does that mean anything to anybody? Woodstock. Moon landing. Maybe somebody here was born in 1969. Those are all significant events. Anyone here living in northern Illinois in 1969? If you were, you might remember the moon landing. You might have vaguely heard of Woodstock. But something was happening in August that was unprecedented in, do the mental math, Craig, you can do this, 61 years. <laughs> the Chicago Cubs had a nine and a half game lead for the National League pennant race and an amazing team, and Northern Illinois was awash with optimism and enthusiasm until catastrophe struck. The Cubs lost 17 of their last 25 games. The New York Mets with their Later to be Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Seaver went on a tear and won the division by eight games. It was an unprecedented collapse. <laughs> and it set in motion uh, off and on over the next decades some similar, though never quite so dramatic, collapses. So that eventually the Chicago Cubs got the unofficial nickname, the lovable losers. I was living in Northern Illinois as a 14 year old boy in 1969, Had, wasn't old enough yet for my first summer job. And so I lived and died either by television or radio. Yes, these were the days when if you didn't live in Chicago proper, you couldn't see every game televised, but WGN radio was still wildly popular. I lived and died usually died with those games from mid-August to the end of September. And I discovered that the only way to avoid absolute total depression was to create a defense mechanism, especially when you're, I don't know if you've ever listened at length to a baseball radio game, maybe if you're driving someplace, you can't tell what's happening ahead of time. <laughs> you, you don't get to watch that fly ball that might be a home run or maybe not. Oh, oh you hear the crack of the bat, but it doesn't really tell you a lot until the announcer explains what's happened. And the only way I could survive those broadcasts was to assume whenever the Cubs were up, whatever they did, they'd be out. And when the other team was up, they'd be scoring. Uh, 
And that way, if that's what happened, I had planned for it. And if it didn't happen, all I could do is be pleasantly surprised. I think that psyche followed me for quite a few years with sports teams that I rooted for. <laughs> I think that psyche followed me in some other areas of life where some people who uh, are the eternal optimists would uh, believe in God for big things and the cynic standing on my one shoulder <laughs> out shouted the optimist on my other shoulder and said, nah, it won't work. It'll all fall apart. It'll go just like the Cubs. Some of you know, if you follow baseball at all, that an astonishing event happened in 2016. For the first time in 108 years, the longest period of time that any American professional sports team had ever gone without a championship, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. I had despaired of thinking I could see that in my lifetime. So I had to start reevaluating my psyche. If God could do that with what in the cosmic scheme of things is still a pretty trivial event, how much more might he want to do great things with his people and his churches? I mentioned last week that um, when I grew up, I had neither the good looks nor the athletic abilities that made me one of the cool kids. I was a pretty good student. And that helped not make me one of the cool kids. And um, there were times when I think the 1969 Cubs psyche <laughs> followed me into uh, what my life overall was going to be. Somebody, maybe with just a few close friends who shared some of my academic interests, but nothing to make any kind of a splash or anything that a uh, significant number of people would take notice of. That's a very long-winded introduction. At least I'm aware of that fact. To the early years of a man who we know best as King David long before the word king was associated with him. If you can have a two-part series, that almost seems too small to be a series. Um, 
this is the second part of something we started last week. I'm skipping one chapter since it only is two parts. And looking at 1 Samuel 16, and as Joy has read, the first 13 verses. And we'll go back through those slides, um, looking at them in a little more detail. What chapter 14 and the first part of 15 introduced us to last week was the meteoric rise and fall of the first king over a united country in Israel by the name of Saul, who outwardly speaking had everything going for him. Looks, strength, charisma, military skills, success in battle. But failed to trust and follow God at some very key junctures, especially when it looked like the enemies, the Philistines, were about to get the upper hand. Samuel had told him before the section we read last week on one occasion, wait for me at a place called Gilgal until the end of such and such a day. It was about a week out. I'm going to come. We're going to have a sacrifice for the Lord. And as a result, he's going to bless our endeavors. And the sun was going down on the last day. And Saul was convinced that Samuel wasn't going to make it. And so he took things into his own hands and didn't actually perform the sacrifice according to the instructions that Samuel had given and kept some of the best meat for himself and and then Samuel showed up as the sun was getting ready to go down over the horizons and in the world's shortest and worst paraphrase ever said, what the are you doing? That's, that's what the heck, if, if you were concerned. Um, <laughs> WTH, I don't know. And... Um, Saul made all kinds of excuses for how he really was following the Lord's will. And Samuel poked holes through all of them. Finally, he said, I've sinned. Samuel said, you're not going to reign forever. You're not going to have as long a life on the throne as you would have had otherwise. And your sons, your offspring are not going to inherit the throne after you. Saul begged otherwise, but this was God's will. Samuel knew it, and there was no changing his mind. And so even though last week we read about a, a wonderful battle, Saul would have gotten all the accolades, but we read the part that said it was really his son Jonathan that uh, started everything in motion. And through... Not an unrealistic, but a realistic risk-taking venture set the stage for his father and the much bigger armies to rout the Philistines. All the main characters go home, but the Lord prepares for the next king. 
this passage is such an odd one. Nothing is like you would expect it to be. Samuel is told to go anoint a king who's not even going to sit on the throne for over a decade. What's that all about? And as we read verse by verse this story, we have a classic example of what literary people would call an anti-hero. Everything that happens surrounding the anointing of David is just about the exact opposite of what you would have expected if it's time to throw a party for the next Super Bowl winners or, or whatever the modern comparison would be. I'd say something about our president, but we don't get nearly as excited about that as we do about sports teams, at least in Denver. A new king is announced while the old king is still on the throne. And Saul is going to hear about everything that's going on. The end of chapter 15 says, Samuel left for Ramah. That was just a tiny bit north of Jerusalem. Saul went to his home in Gibeah. That wasn't even as far north of Jerusalem. The anointing is gonna take place in Bethlehem, we learn here in the opening verses which is just five miles south of Jerusalem, there's no way that, and these are small towns in those days, there's no way that Saul is gonna go to Bethlehem, sorry, that Samuel is gonna go to Bethlehem without Saul knowing about it. What's he going there for? In little towns, anybody grow up in a little town? Everybody knows everything about everybody or thinks they do. The rumor mill is sometimes worse than the, the true news. So God tells Samuel, just go and say you're offering a sacrifice. Don't worry about Saul. Invite Jesse, invite the elders of the town. Jesse seems to have been someone important. Previous genealogies in the Old Testament have predicted that a king will come from his lineage. And yet, even with this mask of doing things incognito, verse four, when he arrived in Bethlehem, well, four and five, the elders of the town trembled and, and said, have you come in peace? Well, why wouldn't he have? Because everybody's heard the stories of what's happened. They will have heard about Samuel publicly rebuking Saul and saying his kingdom wouldn't last for a normal lifespan they could easily have jumped to the conclusions he's coming to anoint a new king. But Saul's not dead. <laughs> not dead yet, if you like Monty Python. 
it's a tough crowd. This is dangerous stuff. These are troubled waters. Yes, Samuel says, I've come in peace to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Well, why would you do that? (laughs) This wouldn't be for his own personal sins. There was the tabernacle in Jerusalem for that. Oh, maybe Samuel had heard that uh, some crime had been committed in the area of Bethlehem. Maybe, maybe there was an unsolved murder and a sacrifice to plead for God's forgiveness corporately for the sins of the community out of whom such a person might have arisen. Maybe that would have triggered a sacrifice or some other calamity. Or maybe he was coming to announce a judgment on the community of some kind, but then plead for the Lord's mercy. Whatever it was, it didn't look good for Bethlehem. And so there's a fairly secret gathering. He tells the elders to consecrate themselves probably means a ritual washing of some kind, putting on clean clothes if necessary, praying for the forgiveness of their own sins. And then he consecrates Jesse and his sons and, and invites them to this um, not entirely private, but semi-private meal. But it's very clear as the dinner unfolds that this is about anointing a new king. I'm sure there's a good YouTube video out there. I should have looked for one. You can do that in your spare time. Spare time? What's that? Oh, okay. I, I imagine this uh, string of young men beginning with the largest and most grown up and most muscular, you know, maybe like Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. I keep trying to find cultural things somebody might relate to. And uh, each of the subsequent sons in birth order just a little less so, but all possible candidates for the throne. Yeah, if you're a 21st century person, you're saying, wait a minute, didn't Jesse have any daughters? Yeah, he probably did. But in a culture where they wouldn't naturally inherit the throne, Samuel is driven to look at the sons And with whatever method, we're not told, the Lord indicates to Samuel what he wants. Not one of these seven is God's chosen. And so, (laughs) it sounds funny in our world of small families, but it's like seven sons. What, don't you have any more sons? And Jesse says, there is still the youngest. He's tending the sheep. 
oh yes, after centuries of Jesus as the good shepherd and I grew up with, my parents had given me a pure white little statue, I don't know what it was made out of, nothing expensive, but some kind of stone statue about that high of a very European looking Jesus cradling a, a lamb. Shepherds have gotten glorified, but shepherding was a messy business. It, it was for those who couldn't do anything else. It was for the youngest in the family, once he was at least old enough to do that. There wasn't anything glorious or attractive about being a shepherd. And in some contexts, where shepherds were nomads, they were almost like the modern day gypsy or what the Europeans today call travelers, where there's a certain stigma attached to them. Why hadn't the youngest been invited to the sacrifice? But Samuel says, send for him. We will not sit down. We're not going to finish this party until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. Now, probably the best single English word translation of what comes next as found in a lot of Bible translations, says, he was ruddy. Ruddy? Do we even use that word? It sort of means red-cheeked in the way that shows that you were in good health. So the NIV tries to make sense out of it and says he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features He's a cute kid, cute young adolescent. Yeah, maybe the girls will like him. But, but it's not the kind of compliment that Saul got <laughs> of somebody who's leadership material. And yet as soon as he comes in, the Lord says, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil. Imagine something sort of like a, one of those trumpets with an open end that you could fill it in with something, fill it with something. He pours out the oil in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David So Samuel went home, the end. What? Take a look at this next slide. I submit to you that there are at least 10, count them. It'll take two slides, but it's okay, we're going fast. There are at least 10 features that we've just seen that make this story from start to finish the opposite of what that culture would have expected the anointing of a king to be, to be like. The first is that Samuel is announcing a new king while the old 
and as we will learn, rival king, is still on the throne. So much so that Samuel fears being murdered for what he's about to do. Second is that this is a special sacrifice, the type of thing you would expect to have public, like uh, fireworks displays. But it's basically incognito, hidden from most of the people of Israel. And yet, nevertheless, and a third point, Bethlehem's elders are still terrified. Every scenario that they can think of that might bring Samuel to town to offer a sacrifice is not a good one. And so, fourthly, even the party, even the celebration, even the anointing service accompanying the sacrifice is carried on pretty much in secret. That's almost an oxymoron. Have you ever had a secret party? I mean, the way I know my neighbors are having a party is because I can see and hear it. If it's secret, it's not a party, is it? And then fifthly, Samuel, speaking on behalf of God, one by one by one, all the way up to seven, rejects the most obvious candidates. What's the key principle here? The Lord looks on the heart. Not all the externals that they and we so naturally gravitate to. Now the Broncos will be saved. They have Russell Wilson. Well, here's my cub psyche coming back again. I think they're going to need more than that. But, but anyway, may I be proved wrong. And yet, as if to put it right in everyone's face, God makes Samuel parade Jesse's sons out in front of the group one by one (laughs) to highlight their rejection. What do you think the seven were saying among each other after each one had passed in review and been turned down? (laughs) Thank you. And so, it's the youngest, probably the smallest, out in the fields in the inglorious role of a shepherd. And I don't know if anybody still uses this term. The older I get, the more I realize that my young adult culture slang may be meaningless or misleading to others. David was probably what we would have called a pretty boy. Oh, he's good looking. Yeah, people would be drawn to him. But really, it's just externals like everybody else. 
that God rejected. And yeah, he gets anointed, the last point. <laughs> and nothing happens. <laughs> Nobody goes out to a great battle. Nobody tells the news to Saul so that David and Saul can get their lightsabers out. I don't know, no, I'm confusing stories. Everything is backward, upside down, reversed. Maybe David was lovable. I suspect he was. Glowing with health and a fine appearance and handsome features. But I think most people would have looked on him by the standards of that culture and said he was a lovable loser. So what do we do with that in the 21st century? What do, you, what do we do with that in the 2020s? We're finally up to a decade that we know what to call. We never knew what to call the, the first 10 years. Are they the 2000s? The, but wouldn't that mean the whole century? And then do you say the 2010s or the 20 teens? And, and now at least we know what to, to it's the 2020s. <laughs> Just like my dad grew up in the 1920s, talked about it. I think we still have lovable losers. Some of them maybe don't even feel very lovable. Some of them we may not think of as lovable, but we certainly have our losers. I believe that some of you have felt like losers I have. And I suspect some of you have had experiences much worse than anything I've had in my life. I've never been mugged. I've never been robbed. I've obviously never been killed. <laughs> I've, to my knowledge, never been cheated on, never been divorced never been estranged from my parents, never been seriously persecuted for my faith, never been sexually assaulted or harassed like we keep learning so many in our world have. I suspect some of you at times, maybe even now, have felt like losers and whether you thought you were lovable or not, <laughs> we need to remember that God loves every loser. We need to say thank you to each other, to everyone who has ever shown care and kindness and compassion to a loser. David's life eventually turned around. I told Anna I was going to make these points first, second, third, but it felt awkward and 
she's following me. She's doing so good, so I'm just not going to be awkward. David's life eventually turned around and the lovable loser became a lovable winner. Oh, not perfectly. (laughs) Everybody, if they know anything about David, remembers his adultery with Bathsheba and sending Uriah off to the front lines, Bathsheba's husband, to be killed in battle. But hopefully anybody who remembers those also remembers Psalm 51, which is one of the most precious psalms we have out of all 150 that is David's heartfelt prayer of repentance. When I grew up in a liturgical church, it was something that, that formed part of our communion liturgy when we sang, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. Opening lines of Psalm 51. And yet, even with all of that, There were people who rejected David and will reject us. But there's another part of my story that's more important for you to remember than the Cubs. (laughs) Though, maybe if you remember that, it'll trigger your memory of the other part. The year I turned 16, not quite two years after The man in the moon paled in comparison to the Cubs' collapse. (laughs) I found the Lord. I found Jesus. I found a group of kids my own age or a year or two older at my high school who, sadly, unlike any of the boys or girls my age at my fairly small church, acted, spoke, backed up their words with their lifestyle like they loved losers, including smart ones. (laughs) Smart ones who sometimes were too quick to brag about it because they couldn't brag about anything else. And I discovered that Jesus is in the business of loving losers so that every loser is lovable. I learned that the cool kids really weren't as put together as they looked on the outside. I've learned that about the cool adults too. (laughs) You know, those that look like they have it all together in Highlands Ranch and other upscale parts of the area. Oh, That's right, we're in Highlands Ranch. (laughs) Without Jesus, a lot of the outward trappings, the climbing of the job ladder, the acquiring and purchasing power of income is just a way to mask deeply seated insecurities every bit as was with some of the kids I knew in high school. And then when you retire and your mortality begins to strike you in the face, it gets a whole lot worse because there's no hope for anything after death. 
In fact, I learned that from God's perspective, there are no winners apart from him. We're all losers compared to his perfect, infinitely holy standard. But we're all lovable losers because God loved us all and loves us all. And so, and I bet Anna's right with me. Here's my final point. She is. We can all become winners and lovable winners in part right now in this life and fully in the life to come. And of all the people in the Old Testament who did not have the benefit of New Testament revelation, David, we take another message to demonstrate this, seems to have recognized that a little bit more than anybody else and appropriated it. For which we can be very grateful and say, as I've tried to ever since 2016, banish the lovable loser's psyche. Not just for the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> well, okay, now they've kind of reverted, but that's okay. They won once. That, that's, all, that's all I need to make me happy. I want to have realistic risk-taking expectations. It happened once. That, that, that means that God is still on his throne and, and can do anything. He could turn connections. As your pastor returns, as none of you relax because your pastor has returned, but you keep doing good stuff, he could fill this auditorium again. Oh, maybe not next week, but in time. Would you dare to dream with God for that and work with him for that? And whatever you personally are experiencing, where you feel like a loser, even lovable, trust in him. See the world as he sees it, where you can become a winner and a lovable winner. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for every person in this room who is a lovable winner, if they know you. If there are any who don't, I pray that they will choose to become your followers. If there are any who do but still feel like losers, I pray that you will help them to see themselves as you do, no matter what they've done or been, as someone who's Life can be amazingly pleasing to you. Convince them of that, would you? Help them take steps to abandon whatever might be standing, if anything, in the way of them believing that and of it being objectively true. Thank you for picking us up countless times after we blow it and still using us when we turn our hearts back to you. We 
because you look on our hearts and not on anything else. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.